0: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to the nonprofit Utopia live stream this morning. We want to apologize for the difficulty that we had last week. We had a lot of feedback and rather than continue on, we decided that we would, you know, disband and then come back. And I really, really appreciate that my guests were able to come back. We've got today with Lewis she is the head of Meadows Eastside, uh, Medals Eastside Community Resource Organization, better known as MECRO. We've got Bobby Fishkin; he is an executive with Crowd Doing, and we've got Ramona Taylor Williams. She is the executive director of Montgomery Citizens United for Prosperity, or MCUP, and we may or may not have that she needed to check her schedule. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started. As you may recall, for the month of September, we focused on leveraging community networks to do a number of things. One of the things we focused on initially was how do you use community networks to make sure that our children who are in elementary and high school don't get left behind during this pandemic. We focused on that. Topic for about two weeks. And then afterwards, we focused on how we can tap into community networks to create broadband plans for local neighborhoods as well as for, um, for municipalities. So today, we're going to focus on tapping into networks to maintain sustainability for our environment. So, I again welcome everyone aboard and have you come to us in your own way and just let us know who you are, what you do and all that good stuff. And we'll get that behind us and have a wonderful conversation. So we will start with you, Sharon.
1: So, hello, my name is Sharon Lewis. I am the executive director of Meadows Eastside Community Resource Organization. We are located in the South Shore community in Chicago, Illinois. Um, Meadows Eastside is and an organization that focuses on seminars, training, social justice, and economic and ec- ecology and environmental justice. So what we focus on um, initially is our commitment to the renewal and invigoration of our communities, um, uh, cleanliness and security of um, Forgive me, I'm a little nervous, uh, of maintaining our environment sustainability. Mm -hmm. We provide workshops and trainings and environmental sessions so that our much-needed resources and accessibilities are maintained, and we provide platforms for doing so by doing uh, workshops and seminars at our location on 2734 East 79th Street. So one of the things that we try to do is bring in information from all of our city partners so that our residents are informed and have a, an easy way to access information. We, we, um, we take care of what we call income qualified residents and we service income qualified residents. And that means people who are um, eligible for services in the energy efficiency space that can maintain and receive services from different partners like um, ComEd, People's Gas, Ameren, to receive services that are free that will free up their resources to take care of other things that are important in their spaces that they can then use those resources to um, provide for their families. We provide light bulb assistance, Um, we provide window assistance, we provide refrigerators, we provide, um, uh, what else? Um, Well, support for community support assistance. So um, different platforms for that.
0: Awesome, awesome. I wanna let everybody know that we have been joined by Leighton Olson. Leighton is one of our members and it was his idea to actually have this series. So I'm going to add Leighton to the stream. Leighton, I'm sorry, I've got Naomi's banner up here no, for no, you. I didn't mean to do that. Um, I was just wondering if if you had anything that you wanted to share with us.
2: Uh, Valerie, uh, thank you. Um, I actually uh, just finished with uh, uh, Naomi's uh, uh, power program on uh, uh, utilities and and water rights. And and, uh, Mm -hmm. I think she'll be joining um, shortly. But I I guess I would just uh, uh, suggest how we can all take the... uh, uh, the environmental quality and use the community hub kind of framework around community college areas of about 150,000 and uh, uh, bring together uh, community life uh, activities, uh, assemblies mm-hmm. and projects of, of all kinds, mm-hmm. um, including uh, assemblies to, to uh, on water access and uh, uh, water quality. Okay. so that's uh, i guess is, is and to connect it with the other sorts of things like the illinois connected communities program which uh is looking to do the same thing for uh uh, uh internet and it can mm-hmm. do the same thing with with power and natural gas and and, and things like that and mm-hmm. how to have that be uh there uh, say uh, you know something every month but with a big thing in the spring around uh, uh, earth day when uh, the, the proposal is to have uh, water quality assemblies or excuse me, natural resource assemblies in the spring, right about April in the community college near you all over the darn country. And mm-hmm. the same thing in the fall on the back to school and, and planning for uh, the fall flu season and, uh, you know, how to how to insulate so that you can you know get through the darn winter.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Next, we'll hear from Ramona.
3: I think you're on mute. My apologies.
0: Ramona, unmute yourself.
4: Okay. I apologize oh, for that. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Ramona Taylor Williams, and I am the executive director of uh, Montgomery. Well, we call ourselves North Montgomery Citizens United for Prosperity, and we go by impact because that's a mouthful. And our work is concentrated in a small Community in North and Central Mississippi called Duck Hill, uh, Mississippi. Duck Hill has a population of about eleven hundred people, maybe a little more. And for many, many years, the community, um, this little town, um, flooded profusely. Okay, Ramona. Yes. Can you adjust
0: your computer a little bit so we can see your full face? Uh, I've got it down for as long as I can.
4: Okay, it's showing now. Okay. Um, I was. I do research and um, I came across a funding opportunity, a grant opportunity, uh, from the Southeastern Sustainability Directors Network that were looking for um, Proposals and projects to address sustainability issues. And um, they wanted the focus to be on uh, vulnerable communities, uh, a partnership with the city, and also a grassroots organization. Um, I did not know anything about Duck Hill.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. at least, at least it, it, it shows it could hit anybody. Gosh, you know, that's that's what. Okay.
0: Layton, can you so. mute your mic? Please. Thank you. Okay. I'm sorry, Ramona.
4: That's okay. Um, I didn't know anything about Dutch I was working for an organization that recruited me and brought me to Mississippi in 2015. To do their communications, uh, to be their director of communications and development, and um, this organization, they work with small communities uh, in the Delta. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's how I was introduced to uh, one of the community leaders in Duck Hill. Brought him in my office, asked him if we could probably do this, and everything, because $300,000 is a lot of money. I didn't want to leave it on the table. And um, they issued that uh, there was four criteria, and one of the criterias was flooding. And mm-hmm. so um, that's what we centered and framed our proposal around, and that was to mitigate severe flooding from stormwater uh, runoff. Also, community engagement and education mm-hmm. around climate change and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, we developed a pre Rangers program, and we looked at planning, uh, realizing that so many of our small communities, they do not have access and resources to develop community plans and sustainability plans and mm-hmm. whatever the planning requirements are, they just simply don't have that capacity. So we put together um, a model, we framed a model to oh. address those issues, and we were one of six, uh, one of six communities in the entire southeastern region. To receive three hundred thousand dollars in funding
0: for two years. Okay, awesome. Can can I stop you there, and then yeah. you can share some of the the rest for the next question? Sure. Is that work? Okay. righty. And now we're here from Bobby.
3: Sure. Thank you. And it's great to be here. Uh, Crowd doing is working on operating leverage for systems change, which means that there's different kinds of leverage points we have, and we're trying to combine enough leverage points in each social innovation to reach the the scale of the problem. And so we've done that through virtual volunteers distributed in 20 countries who've been collaborating. Uh, More than uh, for for thousands of hours uh, each week, they have been collaborating on these 20 social innovation theses. Examples of those do include ones that connect to how do we transform ourselves in alignment to regenerative goals. Uh, One example of that is that right now we have a risk transfer market in the world. We don't have a risk prevention market. So we have insurance-linked securities and reinsurers and all these industries that work on risk. But right now, the problem is that preventable risk and unpreventable risk are are treated the same thing, which means that we have effectively um, people and institutions effectively gambling on the manslaughter of fellow humans which is not helpful when these are preventable risks so mm-hmm. for sustainability risks we think that getting to preventability that could be very simple we we think that things is is as uh, with thousands of years of history like sheep and goats can prevent a fraction of the risk so what we're trying to do is reclaim the, the big history of social innovation You know, we think the creation of the fire department and the creation of the public parks were great examples of 18th and 19th century social innovations. And we want to give an opportunity for people to collaborate on social innovations as broadly and diversely as um, can happen and has happened in some other fields, such as in open source software, there's been a broad service learning participation and a broad micro-leadership participation, but less so in anti-poverty, public health, sustainability, and education. So what we work on is, how do we create autonomy-compatible micro-leadership for the individual volunteers? Uh, we can draw upon both the Linux history and self-determination theory for that, and we also identify how do we get lifelong professional development to be happening through mm-hmm. social innovation, solving real-world real, real, world, real world problems, because it's 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 more efficient to learn if you're working on real world problems and yet service learning uh, has over the last 50 years go, grown to uh, have uh, you know, 20% plus of universities and schools in the U.S. but a negligible percentage of lifelong professional development. So for all, all of the people who are in fields that um, could be service learnable, whether they're project managers or people in uh, marketing or data science, we we think that all of those communities can collaborate efficiently, learning what they need to learn and solving collective challenges. and And, and that's what we've we've been managing is uh, the we we manage our collaborators as a venture lab, which is where we are co founding these twenty social innovations, and we're systems integrating an alliance of. Uh, pro bono allies, individuals and institutional to make these social innovations possible.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And this question is for all of our panelists. Just want to get a sense for what you see as the lay of the land and you've already kind of started that. But at this point, I'm looking at some of the greatest challenges that you're seeing. So we'll start with you, Sharon, can you let us know some of the greatest challenges you're seeing in the community as it relates to sustainability for the environment?
1: Well, I think some of the greatest challenges that I see for sustainability in the environment is um, the participation or the lack there of participation, not just with uh, community members, but with our environmental stewards in terms of government. And so what we see here in um, Chicago specifically is our public officials in their, um, I I would say their, I I don't wanna say their disinterest, but their, their lack of legislation in terms of moving forward the agenda to have um, legislation that says we, we will not bring in things that will hurt, harm, and destroy our communities. So take, for instance, we have old um, steel mills And we have old factories that we're having problems with. Recently in Chicago, we had quite an uproar around the fact that an old factory had some um, demolition and the demolition had an adverse effect on a large portion of a community. A smokestack was demolished and it was demolished exactly during the time of the COVID pandemic, and it affected a whole community. And instead of saying, well, this is not something that we will allow across the board, what was said is, well, this was an accident. And, And so what we had to do is we had to come out and we had to demonstrate about that. So where does Where does the politics, where does the legislation come in that says we will protect the people in the community across the board? That something like this will not happen. We don't have to come out. We don't have to fight and we don't have to march about this Mm -hmm. constantly. We don't have to come out and we have to clean up after the fact. We can come in and we can say before all of these things happen and start to affect our children right now on the southeast side you can drive down any community and you have to roll up your windows and you have to turn <laughs> up the air conditioning because you can't stand the smell it's the legislation that starts before that's going to protect us all the way through so these are the things that we are having problems with now So it's the cleaning and the greening of our community that's going to keep us safe and healthy all the way through. It's going to protect our seniors, it's going to protect our children, and it's going to protect everyone in between. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at here and now.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, Ramona, can you unmute then? give us a sense for what's going on in Duck Hill. What are some of your greatest challenges and issues?
4: Um, I think our greatest challenge is um, having the resources, the, the, the intellectual resources and the financial resources in order to move an equitable and a sustainable agenda and model, mm-hmm. not only Duck Hill, because we look at the broader, uh, uh, the broader area from a regional perspective. So, um, looking at how the institutions and the systems respond to the needs of our most vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. Are they indeed responding in an equitable manner? Are they the uh, emergency management systems for, for instance? How do those systems engage and relate to our communities? Mm-hmm. And having access to, that's why I am just so excited about Bobby's initiative because Stephen's uh, doing is exactly what we need. Right? We need that. Uh, we need to democratize the financial. I'm sorry, the professional sector, and and in, in, integrate or bring the financial sector and the grassroots sector together, so that we will be able to leverage their resources to carry out. The 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 desires and the dreams of the community. Uh, for instance, one of the requirements of the SSDN RFP was that the local jurisdiction had to have a sustainability plan. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? The hill is just a small community and neighborhood with less people than the neighborhoods that you have in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. They did not have the plan. So we had to go to uh, advocate with the funder and explain to them if we are to be able to be competitive, then there are some things that you may want to relax. Well, mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, the plans engineer found a 1975 zoning plan. And we I went to the funder on I said, would it be acceptable if we propose to revise this nineteen seventy-five zoning plan into a livable community and sustainability plan? Mm-hmm. And they said yes. So what does the landscape look like? COVID has unearthed and brought to the surface many of the acute and chronic stresses that we deal with in our communities on a daily basis across mm-hmm. the board. I think this is an opportunity for us to be able to put forth and to advocate for an equitable agenda in Mississippi, starting in the communities and the areas where we work, and then hopefully creating that model that will be able to be replicated throughout the state. Um, but it is going to take resources. Mississippi is a climate denier state. So that means that, as Sharon was saying, so that... Uh, political will and infrastructure is not in place, so we're looking at how can we reform and retool mm-hmm. the system so that the system will work better and for in order to create more healthy and sustainable communities in Mississippi. In some areas, are resemblance resemble third world countries. Okay, that's where we are.
0: Ah, speaking of third world countries, this is a great segue for Bobby. Bobby works a lot with third world countries as well as other communities on the West Coast. So, Bobby, can you unmute yourself and give us a sense for uh, what your perspectives are in terms of the lay of the land with which you're dealing? What are some of the challenges and what are some of the the issues? And I know you already started talking about
3: Sure, no, <clears throat> I'd be happy to. Um, I, you know, I think that there's one set of challenges which relate to that there are underutilized laws or laws that we don't use in a way that aligns to mm-hmm. our collective agency. I mean, that, that's where we've been learning a lot about uh, why if you want to transfer hazardous nuclear waste, there's all kinds of regulations for it, but if you want to transfer the waste of the, the risk of communities uh, without their permission, you, you can just transfer that risk and ship that over to Bermuda to have pension funds and invest in it. And there, there's there's no wherewithal to prevent the risk because once the risk has been transferred, you know, it's, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle because it's, it's already been scattered to the seven seas and all these institutions don't have requirements that they have to share, whether they own your risk, whether they own the, the risk of catastrophe, you know, the, the, so we've been identifying that there, there should be a window for risk preventability before risk transferability, and that that would be a, a policy path to addressing the gap, But, you know, we'd also say, you know, on a a policy level, we're also seeing that there's gaps that, you know, maybe the pandemic creates some once in a generation opportunities to make transformations happen that wouldn't have otherwise happened. we did the back of the envelope math and saw that, you know, we have the goal globally of 25 to 33 percent of land and water preserved, conserved, regenerative in order to prevent biodiversity collapse, only one country in the world is at that threshold, Seychelles, because they got the debt for dolphins where they got their debt forgiven by the European countries in exchange for preserving in perpetuity the dolphin habitat. So we, we estimated that if we were to get every country in the world back to pre-pandemic debt to GDP ratios through debt for nature, reciprocal forgiveness, I, you know, New Zealand and Australia could take 5% of their debt holdings in each other forgive it for nature conservation and invite the whole rest of the world to join them and do the same and sort of have a viral debt for nature cancellation you know you, you would be able to get to pre pandemic debt to gdp ratios and prevent biodiversity collapse now just just because we have enough collaboration among global virtual volunteers to figure out that something is is possible or plausible doesn't mean it necessarily happens But we we see ourselves as stewards of these theses, a thesis being one where we think there's an exponential impact potential to make a transformation in our society, and we, we see a path between here and there. I mean, we're we're simulating likewise in the case of homelessness prevention and super commuting prevention. Of course, super commuting prevention has a, a major sustainability component. We, we've studied that the last seventy five years, Stanford University has bought half of each professor home, and you know when they when they until um, the life of of a professor and spouse. But the they've done this at negative subsidy. They've actually made more money than their investments in the rest of uh, the markets through this program. Um, and, and so if they've done it at negative subsidy, then could we have homelessness prevention and overboarding prevention and supercommuting prevention at zero subsidy? And we, we've had a team simulating that we we think in principle that that's possible. In other words, if someone could buy a quarter of a house, get a mortgage on a quarter of a house, and, and not a whole house and a Bay Area or Seattle or New York uh, circumstance, then you know that would prevent um, a substantial percentage. Uh, we, we think that, in theory, such a model could max out at preventing half of family homelessness and half of super commuting in a, a, a high inequality metropolitan region constrained by land, uh, water, or mountains, et cetera. But uh, at a theoretical level, that's wonderful. What we are then, you mentioned where we then get challenged is we're trying to systems integrate the pro bono human capital stack for systems change. So that means that we're reaching out to all these university pro bono clubs and companies that have volunteer programs and trying to get enough diversity of expertise across disciplinary lines to be able to build out each of these social innovations.
4: Okay, that is awesome. It sounds to
0: me too that those strategies might over time actually help municipalities and local governments to to minimize the tax burden that they need to Put on others if, if the subsidies are basically transferred from the government sector to the private sector. At least that's what it sounds like to me.
3: You, you don't, don't need for certain categories the level of subsidy that exists that is not sufficient anyways. There's not enough Section 8 in uh, Bay Area or Seattle, et cetera. The, but the, the idea is that if we free up the subsidies from the groups that don't need them economically, then, more of the subsidies can be available for the people who really do need them. Mm-hmm. In other words, we've talked about half of family family homelessness preventable in the Bay Area context because there's another half that we don't think we can prevent through economic means alone. We think there's other public health um, you know dependencies to be able to prevent another fraction of that that are also really important, but we're we're not saying that there's not it's not important to have government subsidy where that is necessary. We're just saying that where it's possible to achieve the same impact goal without subsidy, we should do so so that we can free up government-scarce resources for the people who most need the subsidy.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's awesome. Very, very innovative. And Robert, you just happened to be next in line for the next question. Um, we talked about, you know, the fact that crowd doing is working with aims to achieve systemic change through compound intrinsic leverage for impact. What exactly is that? And how does that translate to the work that we're
3: doing on the ground? So each approach has a a level of leverage, Uh, whether it has enough leverage or not is is a different (laughs) question, but you can, you, you can grade any intervention by any nonprofit or impact organization in the world based on, you know, how much leverage, you could think about leverage as how how much force multiplication do do we have, right? Mm -hmm. So in in our case, we've identified 18 categories of leverage, and these different categories of leverage, we combine Mm -hmm. in each social innovation thesis. So, you know, it depends on which example, but the kind of leverage I've been speaking about with regards to the the wildfire prevention, the the leverage there is inherent liability. You know, these stakeholders have risk on the table. We we did a simulation of over the next 20 years, what will every fortune 500 company in California lose if they do not do more to prevent the wildfires? And, you know, we, we can show, you know, 90 fortune 500 companies, you know, what is their annual expected recurring losses based on the campfire's recurrence rate. And so You know, that is one type of leverage, but it's not the only type of leverage. Uh, Participation by volunteers is another type of leverage. Um, A a third type of leverage that um, connects is multidisciplinary integration. You know, often these fields are so siloed that, you know, you don't get the operating efficiency that you get if you can cross disciplinary lines in efficient ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we think that there's um, each of these leverage points is... Um, effectively, if, if if you're an impact organization and your aspirations are beyond your fiscal means, then you know how do you uh, transform the level of leverage that you have against the problem to have a, a feasible opportunity to address that challenge in society? That that mm-hmm. that's where we draw upon. There, there's a rich literature in systems thinking, Donnell Meadows and Uh, If you look at the Open Book of Social Innovation, uh, Jeff Mulligan's uh, Mm -hmm. work, there's a a rich tradition of focus on individual leverage points. However, they focus on it as a magic bullet leverage point uh, or magic bullet social innovation where what we talk about is – Um, you know, just like the Harlem Children's Zone is a a cluster of social interventions, a cluster of social innovations, we we think about it the same way. Whether we're talking about a a tea that has ashwagandha and rhodiola and shisandra and lemon balm in it, those are Mm -hmm. a cluster of social innovations from the natural world, or Mm -hmm. if it's a cluster of social interventions from the, you know, Washington State Institute for Public Policy Cost Effectiveness Index, you can see how the interventions... Mm -hmm. So we're saying, how do you get enough leverage for the portfolio of social innovations to achieve a transformational and aspirational goal in that impact context? Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: All righty. So thank you so much for that, Bobby. Sharon, can you tell us about the Light the Night program, Light up the Night? You're on
1: mute. Okay. So, Light of the Night is an innovative program that we are working on in conjunction with our local utility program, um, ComEd. Actually, we just did a, a, a five-hour webinar yesterday with our national um Companies, which is Comed Ameren, um, which is the SAG Utilities. So here, here's what we're trying to do with the Light of the Night program. It is an an ecological way to do justice in terms of securing lighting for low income communities. So what you find is in communities where there is lighting in terms of street lights, business lighting, landscape lighting, you'll find that there is there's more safety, there's more security, there is more infrastructure Um, and what we want to do with light up tonight is we want to provide that same kind of justice, environmental justice in low income communities. What we're proposing is we're proposing to take a simple light bulb and turn any fixture into a security light. We are going to provide a free, light bulb, which is a, um, it has a, a, basically it has a sensor on it that will turn any type of electric fixture into a security fixture, whether it is a, a covered fixture or a bare fixture. It's a dust to dawn light bulb. It goes on. At night and turns off in the morning automatically. It lasts up to seven to 11 years. It's a free light bulb. It's going to be um, given out through a program that's an energy efficiency program. And so the, the point of it is that when you are going home, You are going into a neighborhood that has now been lit up. You are safer. You can now find your keys if you are going to your door. You can now find your steps. You are now driving onto a block where you can find the address. You are now, as a first responder, able to locate the house. If you are going to an address, you can now find the address. If there is not an address, we are proposing to put reflective numbers on those houses. We are proposing to put reflective numbers on those garages. We're trying to create a safe environment for those people who are living in environments that did not before have an environmentally safe environment. So if you've ever lived in a community where there were maybe initially 36 houses on a block and now nine of those houses are missing and they're now vacant lots. So those numbers no longer exist. So then how do you find those houses if some of those house numbers no longer exist or now there's no lighting and so there's not enough street lights to light up that area. So it does not seem like a lot to some people, but now that block has that, that vacancy in terms of lighting. And so this is where the ecology of lighting comes in. So the sun, the trees, these things, all of these things are blocking out light. So what we want to do is, we don't just want to do it here in Chicago. We want to do it in places like Mississippi. I am from Mississippi and Miss Ramona will tell you in places like Mississippi, what you will find is you are driving And there is so much darkness in rural areas. This can be life-changing for people to be able to walk down a road and be able to see what's ahead of you in any rural area. It doesn't have to be Chicago. It doesn't have to be Mississippi. It can be areas that Bobby might be familiar with. It can be areas that anyone is familiar with. Any place where... There is a low-income community. It can be powered by solar energy. This light bulb can be life-changing for anyone. And so everyone should be able to see anywhere they are. And if it's darkness to daylight, dust to dawn, you should be able to have light If someone is coming to you in an emergency, they should be able to find you. And this is why we are trying to light up the night so that you can be found in any situation.
0: Okay, that's awesome. Awesome. Ramona, as you unmute your mic, I can remember you and I were having a conversation about climate change and I was just so shocked. You know, when I think of climate change, I usually think of what happens on either coast, but you were telling me about some situations in the Mississippi Delta and how climate change has impacted the Delta. Can you share with us some of those issues and how you guys are dealing with those challenges?
4: Yes, yes, um, You're you're absolutely right, Valerie. Um, a lot of when most people think in terms of climate change, they think in terms of sea mm-hmm. rise, right? Um, and they don't, and, and the coastal areas, they don't really think um, that inland, the impact that climate change is having on our inlands, on the West Coast. Uh, the wild fi- fires are very much um, driven and connected to climate change. Well, in the Mississippi Delta and also in central Mississippi, where I am working, um, climate change, the effects of climate change is reflective in flooding. Massive, massive flooding. Sharon will know about, um, uh, what's the little town? Yazoo, Mississippi. Uh, Yazoo has been experiencing a great deal of flooding. So in Duck Hill, for instance, that was the major problem that this community was having. The residents did not know that their flooding problems was coming from changing climate patterns. They understand that today because over the last two years, we engaged them in an adaptation and resiliency planning process. And out of that process, this community now has a climate, and adaptation and resiliency climate change plan, action plan. (laughs) Yes, yes. So those are the things that we're doing and I'll put the link in or put in, I'm hoping I'll be able to put the link in for the climate change plan. Our uh, scientific partners, uh, is an organization, a nonprofit climate change organization, uh, headquartered in Seattle, uh, called EcoAdapt. And EcoAdapt has these wonderful women who lead scientists; the majority are women. And um, and so our partner was Alex. her name is Alex mm-hmm. And... Um, You can also go on ECO website and our uh, climate change action plan is on the website there. I'm going to try and put the link in here. So those are the kind of innovative things that we are doing. We're all about exploring and we're getting a lot of feedback. And uh, using education around sustainability and climate change to empower residents to become more resilient and build resiliency in our communities. Uh, COVID has just been such a wide eye-opener and expanded what we normally think of as resiliency because we now know That if our communities lack broadband and if there is a digital divide, then those communities cannot be resilient in the age of COVID. So, sustainability for me has taken on a much broader, much broader view than when I first came into this work looking at sustainability from more of a climate change perspective, and also looking at um, sustainability from a community and economic development perspective to make sure and to shore up that this term that we hear so frequently now, sustainability is not really urban renewal under a new faith. And I'm going to leave it there. And I love what you're doing. (laughs) And and it's so
0: funny. um, Before we go on to the the next question, I'm just curious. uh, When you talked to the residents and they couldn't understand why flooding, you know, why they were getting so much flooding. I'm just wondering what the Farmers' Almanac told them. Was there discrepancy in what, was supposed to happen in terms of rainfall according to the farmer's almanac versus what was actually happening or they were just caught off guard
4: oh i even think that they may be associated agricultural association to the flooding you know mm-hmm. the thing they know is there when the when the heavy rains come they got to pull out the canoes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So making that association uh, to the agriculture in it. And yes, uh, you know, Mississippi is ag state. So we have agricultural land all around us. Um, I don't think that was really uh, I don't think that was even given a thought. But it did, it hasn't come up in our many 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 uh, community listening sessions and focus groups mm-hmm. and everything. Um, now we do work with farmers. Uh, we were fortunate to be able uh, to be selected by EPA, their uh, local foods local places um, program, mm-hmm. and provide and we were provided. 250000 dollars in technical assistance to develop a local food um, um, economy action plan wow so we do look at um, we do uh, work with our local growers and to and bring in other partners so that they will be able to educate them around sustainable agriculture and growing problems. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. You guys, we are running out of time. We have all of nine minutes um, for our original scheduled time. I want to go around the room, so to speak, and get a sense from you what your lessons learned have been and what ways communities can create or tap into networks to address their problems. All right. So we'll start with you, Sai, and then we'll hear from Bobby and then from Ramona. All right.
1: So specifically, I would like to address um, lighting up the night because I think that it can be really instrumental and it's a program that can be duplicated around the country and in every state. And what I did was I addressed the utility companies and initially, I started out with addressing our major utility company here in Chicago, which is um, common because I'm a part of um, a utility advisory committee. And I would suggest for um, Ramona and um, for Bobby and to share anywhere, because all utilities have an energy efficiency um, uh, arm in every state. And especially for low income communities, so there are partners that do an energy efficiency light bulb like the one that I am suggesting. It is not necessary to partner with the company that is doing the particular light that I am using. Um, though I use the company Green light, it's not necessary to use that one, but to use an energy efficiency light bulb that is a dust to dawn bulb because that bulb then again turns any area into a safety and security area and it does like i said the dust to dawn because they have an energy efficiency program this is something that can be done for free and again can be duplicated in any environment And if we're doing this in a low-income environment, it can change how people are living in their environment. It is good for creating safety and security for anyone. This can be life-changing in our environment that that are experiencing crime, that are experiencing domestic issues, that are for our uh, families that have disability issues. So um, I will send you the information on the basic proposal and I'm hoping that it will help communities.
3: Um, I think Valerie suggested I was uh, ne- next in the, the sequence. So what, what I was gonna share is that we found that most impact contacts uh, in the NGO and social enterprise sector, they have um, two to three orders of magnitude fewer roles for the community to participate than they need in order to achieve their their aspirational impact goal. We, we find that there's there tends to be this um, macro leadership context where the only volunteers who collaborate are those at the at the you know, most junior level or the board level, but not everything in between that is uh, critically important to success. So we've worked on that from the perspective of uh, function stacking and role fracturing so that uh, we can create roles for every community member. Because when we speak to a volunteer, the very first thing we say to them is, you know, how, how can we create the perfect volunteer role for you? What would that mean? And what what pieces of our, you know, we've got 750 role descriptions, but what pieces of those roles would you like to combine in Lego bricks to make the perfect role to unleash your superpower and your capabilities? Because when we find the exact right role, it's so much better than just uh, a middling fit in terms of that. So we, we would just say there is a, a lot more community willing to participate if they are given the perfect role and I think it's up to us in the not nonprofit utopian universe to try to uh, make that happen, make that, fe- make, make that feasible.
4: Okay. And you, Ramona? Uh, I think the greatest lesson that I have that I have learned is. Coming from a very, very urban um, environment and recently moving to uh, rural southern Mississippi, that the thinking is very different relative to approach, right? Um, And it requires A lot of patience and a lot of hand-holding and nurturing and cultivating and just drilling down um, at a comfortable level where the residents in our communities, where they are comfortable and understanding that what is so commonplace to many of us, who have been fortunate to be in uh, community organizing from a community and economic development perspective, and who have been fighting for years to bring equity and financing and funding to our communities, that that may not be the case in our Southern states and that they deal with an entirely different set of dynamics. So this has been um, a very humbling and learning experience for me and probably the most rewarding for me to see uh, a community where residents had no sense of hope and that community is now becoming vibrant. And you know, they feel good about their community. And we, uh, I, when I first started working with the community, I shared with the residents, I said, I'm going to put Duck Hill on the map. So that became our rallying call, Duck Hill on the map. And this initiative, the ACEDS initiative, has gained national recognition as a model. And Duck Hill is now on the map. When you Google Duck Hill, Duck Hill comes up on the map. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a wonderful feeling. And I look forward to us raising the resources and the funds that we need in order to go into a seed space, two, which is um, Main Street Redevelopment and also the restoring, the restoration of a beautiful, historic high school called Benford High School that was built as the uh, Jim Crow High School. And so our dream, the dream of the community is that uh, the uh, Benford High School will be converted into a center for arts, culture, and, and social impact. So that's that's where we are. Those are the lessons learned. Um, we've had many accomplishments uh, that we're so proud of. Uh, one of our members is now was is now elected was elected to the board of uh, the board of aldermen. So we're making we're making progress. We're making progress. Yeah,
0: right. great, great. All right, it looks like we lost Bobby. Um, I want to say thank you so much to our guest. Hopefully, he'll come back to give us some parting thoughts. Um, I want to thank Sharon Lewis. She is the founder and executive director of MECRO. I want to thank Ramona Taylor-Williams. She is the founder or founding executive director of MCUP. And I want to thank Bobby Fishkin. He is, oh, I think it's the name of his company off the top of my head, but I wanna thank him so much. Um, oh, he's co-founder of Crowd Doing, and they focus on um, aligning volunteers for projects all around the world and he stepped away. But while we have Sharon and Ramona, I just want to ask you ladies to to share with us some parting thoughts and how we might get in contact with you and we'll start with you, Sharon. Um, you're on mute.
1: Unmute your mic. Okay, um, you can get in contact with me at meadowseastside.org, which is my website. You can reach out to me at meadowseastside.org Or you can call me anytime at 773-540-8659. I am right here in your Chicago community at 2734 East 79th Street. I love my community and you are always welcome. All right. And
0: Ramona. Mm -hmm.
4: Yes. Our uh, Facebook is you um, reach out to us on Facebook and we are in the process. In fact, my designer just called and uh, we're working on launching our website in um, November. Um, and then I can be reached at rfpwilliams at gmail.com and phone number is 314- Three six three five two nine. Okay, awesome.
0: All righty, and there were a couple people who are not with us now, but I think you need to know how to get in contact with them. Um, Bobby Fishkin, he had to leave early. Um, he's the co founder of CrowdDoing, and you can find out more about the work that they're doing at Crowd Doing. Dot world. And then Naomi Davis, unfortunately, she wasn't able to join us this week. She was with us last week and we thank her so much for her time and her contributions to that conversation. And she'll be in touch with some of our other guests. But um, if you want to contact her, you can find out more about her work at blacksingreen.org. All righty. So again, I want to say thank you to our guests. One, thank you for your time, and for those of you who are interested in learning more about nonprofit Utopia, please consider joining us. We're at nonprofitutopia.mn.co. We focus on a number of issues that are helpful to nonprofits emerging nonprofit leaders. In fact, we have two members here. And if if they wouldn't mind sharing some of their experiences, we didn't discuss this. I'm I'm putting them on the spot. But if you can share some of the experiences that you've had with nonprofit Utopia as a member, we'll start with Sharon and then we'll hear from Ramona.
1: So my experience with nonprofit Utopia has just been surreal Building a business as a nonprofit can be very arduous. Going through nonprofit utopia has given me the leadership capabilities, um, has taught me how to build my board, has given me the ability to, to negotiate, has given me the confidence to build a program like Light Up Tonight and to put together proposals and do it with confidence and go into boardrooms and meetings with large-scale companies, um, citywide government, and do it with expertise and information that would take me to the next level. These trainings and informational sessions, you cannot buy them. You, You cannot buy them and this information will take you next level. Um, Valerie Leonard has been doing this for, um, how long has it been, Valerie? Have you been teaching in this? In this space? I have been teaching
0: since about 2007 and Nonprofit Utopia started two years ago.
1: Yes, and so you are getting a level of expertise that um is unmatched and so i think that if you are going to start a nonprofit if you are going to learn more about nonprofits if you're going to go next level this is where you should be and the nonprofit utopia community is so supportive and there's so much information that um this is just the place to be and then you're in a community of your people
0: Thank you, and Ramona, if you can share some reflections on your experience as a member.
4: Oh wow! You know, I met on Facebook, and I have watched her the evolution of nonprofit utopia, and I, I'm I'm just going to say that I've been in the sector for. Many years. I'm not going to say how many years, but just know many years. And nonprofit utopia and the product that they are producing is high level, first class professional, the highest level of professionalism for nonprofit, those who are seeking careers in the nonprofit industry. And it is an industry. And Valerie approaches it from that perspective, that we are in an industry with mega nonprofits, like universities, and Red Crosses, and those folks, and intermediaries, and also, you know, just everyday grassroots organizations, like MCOF, like CHI's, group and just those of us who are in our communities and who have stayed in our communities over the years and dedicated our lives to making them healthier, sustainable, and prosperous. Thank you. Happens you know, Utopia gives you the tools that you need, that we need in order to build our houses and our communities. So I just want to say Thank you, Valerie. Because you know, I'm, I get very emotional about this because it is just something that is so needed, and not only needed. Um, practitioners like myself, you know, we are aging out, and for young people, young mm-hmm. people to come in, and for us to be able to pass the baton on to them, and to have. This, asset because nonprofit Utopia is an asset to have this asset available to them so that they will be able to carry on the work it is a blessing and I just want to humbly say thank you
0: oh my goodness you ladies you're gonna bring tears to my eyes thank you so thank you. much I, I really appreciate the vote of confidence I, I thank you so much for those beautiful words And I promise everybody, I did not pay them (laughs) to to say those wonderful things. And for those of you who are interested in joining, again, um, you can look us up at nonprofitutopia.mn.co. I want to also invite you to participate in a series of upcoming live streams and events that we'll be having concerning fundraising. You know, in the age of COVID 19, A number of nonprofits are struggling. Some are considering closing their doors and people are wondering, is it even appropriate to fundraise in this environment? So we're going to be addressing those types of questions as well as giving you strategies to increase your fundraising and to navigate these tough waters that are caused by COVID-19. So without further ado, I want to say thank you again for joining us and we look forward to being back with you next week where we'll be focusing on various fundraising strategies. All right. Talk to you later.
2: Bye-bye. Take
1: care. Bye.